listeners, and welcome yeah, well. to the NK News Podcast. My name is Jacko Zwetslut. This episode is recorded on the evening of Sunday, May 23rd in Seoul, Korea via Zoom, where I'm joined today by Chatter Carroll, founder of NK News and NK Pro, Colin Zwerko, senior analytic correspondent for NK News, and Peter Ward, a researcher on North Korean politics and a contributing analyst to NK Pro. Today is a special post-summit show to talk about and pick apart what Presidents Biden and Moon discussed and agreed in their summit in Washington, D.C. last Friday. Before we get started, I'd like to remind all of you, please, to review, leave a review about this podcast wherever you can, and please share this podcast with everyone you know and three people who you don't. Second, check out nknews.org and consider buying a subscription today. If you sign up for the annual plan, it's less than a dollar a day, and it helps to fund the excellent journalism that my colleagues put out every day. Also, if you have any feedback or questions or guest recommendations, please send them to podcast at nknews.org. Uh, Chad, you've written an excellent and thorough analysis piece on the summit published earlier today on the NK Pro platform titled On North Korea Issues, What to Make of the First Biden Moon Summit. Now, of course, we would like all of our listeners to subscribe to NK Pro and read it, but uh, we'll talk about a few samples from it here today. What was President Biden's main priority going into the summit with regard to North Korea issues? With regards to North Korea issues, I frankly believe the main priority of the Biden administration is to mitigate or to avoid any risk of creating excuses, justifications for North Korea to escalate tension, to test more weapons, uh, to uh, do anything that could contribute towards any kind of um, you know return to crisis on the peninsula. I, I think basically, though there were lots of small details that came out, that that that's actually fundamentally what the Biden administration's priority is when it when it comes to North Korea is not to really seek credible, serious negotiations. Um, it's just to avoid the subject becoming a total car crash uh, amidst a wide range of other issues that are preoccupying the Biden administration's attention at the moment. And what do you believe was President Moon's main priority going into the summit? <laughs> I think he would have loved to see something like Biden say he's willing to meet um, with Kim Jong-un at any time um, without condition. That would have been amazing. I think failing that, he, you know, he's pragmatic. He knew that wasn't going to happen. I think he would have been, I think he definitely is happy with what's come out of it because we've seen the Singapore Declaration and the Panmunjom Declaration both being sort of endorsed once again or reaffirmed. Mm. Um, and that's that's positive for Moon because um, it shows South Korean voters who he's not very popular with at the moment that all of that diplomacy in 2018 uh, didn't stand for nothing. It's going to have a legacy effect after Moon goes if Biden is genuine about uh, using that as a platform to build future diplomacy with North Korea on. And do you think President Biden can be reasonably satisfied with the outcomes of this summit too? Yeah, I, I think so. Look, I, I've just been quite negative about the, or cynical about Biden, the Biden administration's goals, but I, I think that they are you know, practically speaking, they're quite constrained about what they can do. This isn't a portfolio that's ever lent itself to radical, <laughs> radical, radical approaches that may actually really push the the ball forward. So they were, were the, whoever's come up with the North Korea related agenda on this has 
been working within quite difficult constraints, can't recognize North Korea's nuclear weapon state, can't commit to sanctions relief at this point. Um, and so everything is like pretty much rhetorical. And there are small details in there which are essential and necessary to try and keep the sort of embers of the 2018 summit era alive. But I just fundamentally believe that the Biden administration is aware that this policy portfolio isn't going to be solved anytime soon. And it's, it's investing what it believes uh, will be necessary to, to keep a lid on, on the issue and for, to, to not justify it. Uh, North Korea to let it boiling over and creating a, a big mess that would be difficult for the Biden administration to deal with amongst all the other uh, domestic and global issues it, it wants to prioritize. Okay, let me turn out to Colin. Colin, I... you've also written an excellent piece published shortly after the summit and then updated with some details from the uh, joint statement. Uh, your piece is on NK News and it's called Biden and Moon Pledge Denuclearization Talks with North Korea. Uh, what's in that joint statement that's worthy of note? Anything surprising? Yeah, so Chad mentioned that there's a big difference between all of what is rhetorical and what, are the, what they're saying in their press conference and in the joint statement and what uh, we can expect in reality. But to kind of break down some of the rhetorical aspect of it, yeah, you see positivity and uh, optimism from Moon. Mm. And he says he expects a positive response from North Korea based on just having said that he will be coordinating, coordinating with the US on potential further inter-Korean talks and Biden telling Moon that he supports inter-Korean talks and, and these things. And this is where we really have to remind what is North Korea's stance on these things and what they've said over and over again. And we know that they're not interested in inter-Korean talks since mm -hmm. 2019 because they see the, they want direct results to come from cross-border cooperation. And that can't happen as, as long as South Korea abides by uh, sanctions. And obviously what he reaffirmed, what Moon reaffirmed is their stance as far as following and partnering with the US. So, yeah. <laughs> what about the, uh, the phrase denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula? Should we be too careful, or should we be careful rather, not to read too much into this phraseology that's used in the joint statement? It's true that North Korea has specifically complained about the phrase denuclearization of North Korea before. That was actually in a, a statement that was released in, in 2019, all about how they see denuclearization working, which boiled down to the U.S. removing the nuclear threat from the region, which includes you know, nuclear subs coming right. around the region. So this is that, that whole thing. So we know that they've complained about that before. But I don't think that that's the main issue here, because there's a lot of other stuff in the in the red. In the, if you're just looking at the, the words of what Moon and Biden said that aren't going to uh, reassure Kim Jong-un or, or satisfy any of their complaints that they've repeated over and over again in statements in the last few years. Now, is this summit um, or the joint statement a sign? Can we see a sign at all that Biden and his administration are any closer to a tacit or unofficial acceptance of North Korea as a rogue nuclear state uh, in the manner of India and Pakistan? Absolutely not. Every, every statement that comes out, they, they say, uh, even whenever the, 
the spokesperson for the State Department or the White House comes out and a reporter asks them about North Korea and they say, well, you know, I can't get ahead of anything or I can't reveal any details, but I will say that mm. our main goal remains denuclearization. So mm. it's, I don't think that that's changing anytime soon. Okay. Now, Which what about Chad said it's such a standstill? Ah, yes. Now, what about the mention of Japan and a trilateral cooperation amongst the US, the Republic of Korea, and Japan to address the DPRK? I was uh, surprised to see that in the joint statement. Is this significant? It's only only significant as far as you can actually game it out. Is it, is that going to result in anything? And I don't think that there's going to be. You could start talking about six party talks again as a as a way that Japan could get itself into that conversation. But I don't think that these issue is going to be the top of the list anytime soon. And I don't think that there's going to be U.S. ROK, Japan, North Korea talks or any. You know, I just don't know how it slots in. But what do you think, Chad? Yeah, Chad. I mean, I think it's just a, a nod to the um, uh, Biden administration's efforts to want to, like, you know, uh, focus on close coordination and communication amongst allies. And it's been doing this throughout the policy review, focusing on, you know, Blinken and Austin both went to Tokyo and Seoul. Mm. Uh, Washington, D.C. hosted delegations from Seoul and Tokyo. Um, I think it's just more of that just to, to try and underscore that this is a, a united block that all want the same things when we know that they kind of don't they will have very big variations on the overall goal of denuclearization so but let's not forget this is a joint statement would moon have willingly agreed to a mention of a, a trilateral cooperation with japan or did he have to have his arm twisted do you think he he got a lot of goodies while he was there so i think it was quite a uh, minimum thing for him to do mm. i mean we, we haven't talked about it yet but he got the announcement of a new u.s special envoy on north korea yes more uh, about that later yep yeah he got yeah you just touched on it upon it the commitment to denuclearization of the korean peninsula not north korea mm. uh he got the um the first official white house level uh, reaffirmment of Trump era diplomacy and, and in fact, Moon's own diplomacy, Panmunjom and Singapore declarations. Um, you know, these, these are all from, from Moon's perspective, uh, given what's happened over the last two years, I think these are all, these are all a big deal for him. So to have a, a mention of trilateralism is, you know, it's give and take. I see. Uh, Peter Ward, as a close observer of US, South Korean and North Korean politics. What's your read on all this? Well, first of all, I think the appointment uh, of the special envoy is, uh, is major news. Uh, there was a lot of talk beforehand that there wasn't going to be a special envoy. There was going to be the special envoy on the human human rights issue, which is mm. a separate position, was going to be filled. And uh, a special envoy to North Korea with, you know, portfolio dealing with negotiations with uh, Pyongyang was uh, not going to be filled. So the fact that actually the reverse has occurred is is, uh, is obviously an encouraging sign for people who want negotiations, yeah. less encouraging for those who are primarily concerned about human rights, of course. But aside from that, I would say the tone was very, very um, pro-negotiation, far more pro than I was expecting. Mm. But, you know, I, I, I hate to be a party spoiler, but North Korea right now is under self-imposed near 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 total trade embargo this is right. not a country that is desperate to restart trade with the outside world 
if you look at trade volumes over the last six to nine months, the country has, you know, endured more of a trade shock than at any time since the collapse of the Soviet Union. So, and as you um, point out, that country... self-imposed because of the COVID nineteen. Absolutely, you know, as in, uh, we see the uh, the import volumes before COVID nineteen hit, and they were about well, they were as in trade collapse were about ninety percent last year, and mm. it is very slowly starting a very slow recovery uh, now. Um, so. I don't see a country that is desperate to negotiate to, in order to desperately quickly restart trade with the outside world on normal terms. Then, Peter, who do you think should be uh, happiest with the outcome of this summit? Would it be Moon, Biden, or perhaps Kim Jong-un? Or is it a win for everybody? I think I think it is It is a win for... that. It's it's more of a win for Moon than, than I was at least expecting. I think a, a fair number of people, he should probably be quite happy. I think Biden should be quite happy too, because, you know, the semiconductor investment and various other things that were happening. I feel like Biden has committed to do something which is pretty cheap, you know, and it's not, I don't I don't mean that as an insult. I mean, it's cheap, but, you know, it's not not expensive for him. It's not painful. It's not difficult for the, for the administration in Washington because, you know, North Korea is not in any particular hurry to negotiate anyway. And, you know, the choice of negotiating partner as well as someone with a lot of experience who is not going to be easily played by Pyongyang, too. So, you know, you know, this does no harm. But in fact, we, we've we've mentioned him a few times. Let's let's go straight to it then. The elephant in the room, Song Kim. Uh, I feel like he's done another lap of the field and come back to North Korea again. He was there in the six party talks. He was there from two thousand seven to two thousand eleven. No, there was yeah. And then he he was there in um, period just before the Singapore summit, and he was in Singapore. He's come back once again to the field. Is this a poison chalice? Would he voluntarily take that role? I don't know. Like, um, I'm sure I've never met him, so I'm not really sure. But, you know, as in he's he did six party talks, uh, you know, over 10 years ago now. Uh, mm. He's been uh, the ambassador here, too. And he managed the situation last time. And I think uh, managing the situation for the Biden administration would be a lot easier than uh, doing it for the Trump administration. So probably won't be quite so bad as quite so difficult as last time, if I had to guess. Do we know, so, do we have any so, idea what kind of rapport he has with North Korean negotiators and interlocutors? I don't, but I, I, I just want to say something, which Please, is yeah. I, I feel that this is, uh, as you said, it's someone that's worked on North Korea a lot. It's someone who is not, frankly, associated with major success on the North Korea portfolio. Um, it's someone that I don't think has ambition to really make creative breakthroughs on North Korea from the short interactions I've had with him in the past uh, to me this is someone that's basically taking a kind of maintenance role mm. and will be you know it's not an outsider yeah. it's not someone new that could signal something different it's just a reiteration of more of the same that's how i see it so yeah i'm i've seen some people are pleasantly surprised because he's you know he's been associated with the topic everyone knows him yeah. but I don't see it being, you know, a game game changer in any way. To me, it's just like, let's put this in a safe pair of hands mm. and, um, you know, we'll have low expectations all around for what's going to be achieved in the next four years. One of the reasons I'm quite pessimistic about the outlook under him is I, I did a presentation about four or five years ago. He was on the stage at the same time and, you know, he just he just kept talking about collapse the, the end of North Korea, you know, things like that. And I just, a student actually asked at the end of the presentation, what would the US do if Pyongyang is 
continuing to be here for another hundred years. And he was, he was just totally unprepared for the question or even able to like really think about that as being a possibility. And I think it just reflects something that's a kind of standard way of thinking in DC that this under the Obama administration was an issue that you could patiently wait it out and maybe it would go away. But I think now the reality is that it's not going to go away and they're not going to denuclearize. And so I kind of do feel it does need someone, some fresh thinking and hmm. someone new. Uh, for it to be successful. Colin, your thoughts? Well, I, I was going to say, so if he's he's the one that, that would be sensibly leading working level talks, and I want to mention what Biden said about his willingness to meet Kim Jong-un. So a reporter asked him during the press conference on Friday if he would be willing to meet Kim Jong-un, and he said, quote, we'll see if he made any commitment, I would meet with him. And if there was a commitment on which we met, and the commitment has to be that there is a discussion about his nuclear arsenal. And then uh, he went on to, to kind of say something, some things that didn't, weren't so clear. But then what he was saying is he would meet Kim Jong-un if his Secretary of State and others would negotiate mm -hmm. uh, how we would proceed and come up with an outline, he said, about what they would talk about. So if you think about the future of that, that's, that's sunk him and at some point perhaps Blinken. But... Sung Kim and others talking about what, you know, how, how would they actually get Biden and Kim Jong-un to the table? And I would say, yes, we do see that Kim Jong-un, North Korea, they're not, it's not super urgent that they get back to the negotiation table and they've dropped the big complaint of sanctions because, you know, they basically imposed their own lockdown, their own sanctions on themselves because of COVID-19 mm. paranoia. But there has been a lot of signs that North Korea is open to talks with uh, and they're keeping the door open uh, intentionally to talks with the U.S. So if both sides are kind of showing not a whole lot of urgency, well, that can't go on for forever either. So, yeah, it's maybe it's just perpetually this this issue of where do they begin? How you know where is the common ground? Just just on the, on the Biden in talk of um, meeting with with Kim Jong-un, even though I thought that what, what Biden actually said was really, I don't know, it, it, it was almost rejecting, it, it did reject Trump's approach, he made that clear, but um, he also implicitly rejects Moon's previous summits with Kim Jong-un because Biden said he doesn't want to give Kim, quote, all that he's looking for, international recognition as legitimate. Um, yeah, I thought so that was interesting. Basically it, calling him illegitimate. <laughs> If this is the starting point that you view summitry uh, in of itself as some kind of reward, mm. um, it proves that Biden does look down at Kim Jong-un. He's not an equal leader. And I think that that is a troublesome place to start if you're interested in genuine diplomacy. Mm. And it's, uh, yeah, I think it's something that they'll probably notice in Pyongyang. And uh, yeah, I'll, I'll be very surprised if there's any summits in the next four years. And yet at the same yeah, I'll time, mention, I'll go on, Colin. I'll mention just there hasn't been any response from North Korea on Saturday or Sunday state media, which were the two, you know, the, the, so far their chance to respond to the what came out of the summit. Nothing yet, but I wouldn't be surprised to see a very similar statement that we've seen for over two years now, which is, why are you talking about all these things, such as wanting to come back to talks, but at the same time still talking about human rights and 
your military alliance with South Korea. These are contradictory, and we mm -hmm. don't understand why you're still talking about this. This is what I would not be surprised to see come out of North Korea, just based on. There I also. Uh, yeah. Go on, Peter. Dare I also say that there's an elephant in the room, which is uh, U.S.-China relations, which uh, couldn't be worse right now. Uh, basically, as bad as they've been at any time since 1970. 1972, when when Nixon famously went to Beijing to meet with Mao, um, and you know. Well, there was that time China... that the U.S. Air Force plane was forced down the island of Hainan about 20 years ago. That yeah, was a of bit course. of a low point. And there was the there was the bombing of the embassy in uh, in in, uh, in uh, what's it called the, in Belgrade so, yeah. as well. Belgrade, yeah, uh, yeah, uh, but no, this is as in we have a sustained period of terrible relations between the two sides, and China is North Korea's major economic benefactor. Um, so. They probably don't have veto rights on whether the North and the American, whether Pyongyang and Washington sit down together, but they're going to probably exert some influence on those talks. And also, should we just say they will make North Korea less willing to make concessions uh, in, in such a dialogue because they know that they can always say, well, the Americans are demanding this. Why don't you make a counteroffer, as it were? And, mm. you know, yeah, that, I, it's I, a complicating I, uh... factor in the room that we must remember is there. Right, that China is always a complicating factor in uh, in any uh, deals with North Korea. Um, that's true. Uh, Chad, more so now than any time, I would say. Ah, more so now than any time. Okay. Chad, Colin, any thoughts on that? Well, um, I think there's another elephant in the room, which just ties into what Colin was talking about, how the North will kind of see a duplicitous uh, approach uh, right from all of this summit talk, because buried within there was... South Korea's announcement of the termination of its revised military guidelines. Yes. Now, these are guidelines that have been in place in one form or another since 1979 and have kept really significant restrictions over the types of missiles that Seoul is able to develop, um, I think, partially in order to avoid triggering arms races within the region. And there was work to revise this back in 2020 in, in the sort of final months of the Trump administration where South Korea was allowed to increase the payload of its missiles, but still had to keep its maximum missile launch range within 800 kilometers. Now, th this, all these rules have now turned into dust from what we can see. And I think the key problem is that the North may use this against Seoul to either to, to justify angry rhetoric on Monday. Uh, it's been an issue that Kim Yo-jong personally has seized upon in the past. Uh, as recently as March this year. And it could also be used to justify North Korean augmentation of its ballistic missile programs in the future. I mean, the way Pyongyang will see this is how can the US conceivably allow South Korea to basically do what it wants now with ballistic missiles? Mm. But at the same time, even us launching single ballistic missiles is worthy of UN sanctions. That's not a equal place to start. And that's really essential for north korea is that there is yeah yes and when especially when you take into account what those programs are for i think joshua pollock with a co-author wrote a paper about the development of uh, short medium-range missiles in south korea and he basically argued in this paper i'll uh, send send you a link jack or so maybe we can put it in the show notes or something sure, he basically uh, he argued that uh, south korea maintains it is seeking to develop a decapitation strike capacity to take out the North Korean leadership as and when, if necessary, under emergency circumstances. And even if that is not the stated aim in public, that seems to be what their aim is. And that's how the North Koreans interpret these programs. 
just to help our listeners yeah, me, at home there before me, the uh, the end of those restrictions on on uh, missile excuse me distances that missiles could travel could south korea's existing missile strike most yes. of north korea right now yes 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 a, a large portion of it anyway at least pyongyang definitely well Sorry. let me ask a question you chad said how north korea might view it as you know how can the us allow south korea to do this i would think that that would you know be contradictory from their perspective don't they want the us out of south korea's hair uh, to allow south korea to to be independent that's what they want so maybe they should complain how can you lift restrictions on south korea missile development while at the same time not lifting restrictions on their economic independence uh you know and, and ability to cooperate with north korea on things that are sanctioned maybe something like that because and also is this just about south korea winning the right and not being restrained or is it about south korea wanting to actually pursue these technologies which are restricted now yeah we don't know the details yet it's mm. not clear but just to to flag how kim yo jong presented it i mean when north korea test fired uh, missiles in march this year uh she as you may remember lashed out at south korea because president moon when he visited the defense science institute of south korea in july 2020 after the trump administration allowed uh, some changes to that missile control agreement talked about how um Kim Yo-jong said he talked about how uh, these missiles were basically uh, helping with peace and dialogue. But when uh, the Academy of Defense Science of the DPRK does something missile related, it's uh, viewed as something that provokes serious concern among South Koreans, blah, blah, blah. So she, she pointed it out as a double standard. That was a logic of criticism in the past. Well, and so I mean, there's one thing that describes the inter-Korean and the whole situation. It's double standards, I guess. Yeah. I checked the range of the Hyunmu 4 missile, which is one of these uh, medium-range uh, missiles that the South has developed. And it's it can from Seoul, if it were launched from Seoul, it could uh, it could hit Shinuju because it's eight hundred it has an eight hundred kilometer range and Shinuju is three hundred and thirty-seven kilometers away. Then for the um, experts, what difference does it make that, that South Korea can now design missiles that can fly further. Mad principle of the matter as well. well. Principle matters, of course, but I would also say that it means they can probably develop, they can probably develop SLBMs with longer range. So sub submarine launched ballistic missiles, which could be launched in international waters further mm. away. So they can maintain easily, um, easily hidden capacity to strike the North. That, that would be my guess, but I'm not an expert on this issue. Right. A couple of things that surprised me from the joint statement, we've, we've mentioned one of them before, uh, keeping the, uh, the Panmunjom declaration of April 2018 between Moon and Kim and the Singapore agreement signed between Kim and Trump uh, in June of 2018, keeping that in there as a basis on which to build. Was this a surprise or did the uh, North Korea watcher community really expect Biden to maintain that continuity from Trump's Singapore summit? Uh, well, it wasn't it wasn't that much of a, a surprise because it had been basically hinted strongly that mm. this was going to be in the, as part of the, the summit outcome. Kurt Campbell, who is the U.S. coordinator for Indo-Pacific Affairs on the NSC, uh, he uh, conducted an interview with Jon Happ last week on Wednesday, where he basically said that the Biden administration was going to be basing its future diplomatic efforts on the milestone agreement 
that uh, Trump and Kim Jong-un signed in Singapore in 2018. So we knew it was coming, but this was, you know, obviously White House official confirmation of that. What's the danger of reaffirming that? It's quite easy. It, it, the only reason you wouldn't want to do it is if you're being petty mm. and trying to uh, reject everything from the previous administration. But otherwise, if you look at the actual text of the agreement, it's quite vague and there's not a whole lot to dis disagree with there. Yeah. So it's, I think it's, a, it's an easy thing for Biden to do, to say that. But mm -hmm. it, that, that just saying it won't matter to Kim Jong-un as much as other things. Right, right. But I think all of the, and, and we've, we've also got to bear in mind that there was no human rights special envoy. Announced. That was the second thing I was going to yeah. mention. I wondered, where, especially given Biden's focus on human rights, by leaving that position empty that Robert King left in January 2017 when, uh, when Donald Trump became inaugurated, that was a surprise to me. Is that a sop to Kim Jong-un? He said, I mean, if you read the, the joint statements, he says, we agree to work together to improve the human rights situation in the DPRK and commit to continue facilitating the provision of humanitarian aid to the neediest North Koreans. I don't think that this is going to go well uh, in North Korea based on the way that official statements from the foreign ministry and other departments have hmm. talked about this issue. Just mentioning that is is enough to negate any you know, omission of announcing a human rights uh, envoy, which I guess is required by by Congress. That is required do, by Congress, yeah. And that's an ongoing they, annoyance to North Korea, right? You've got a, a person who's constantly knocking at the door, uninvited, trying to be let in. Yeah, so they, that's another thing that I think is more useful to, to talk about what happened, how that works in reality. Mm -hmm. So if, if they do appoint, if Biden does appoint a human rights envoy, uh, then it's important to just take a look at how how much action is Sung Kim seeing versus this other envoy, because that's what's really going to tell you what Biden wants in terms of signaling towards North Korea. Mm. Now, President Moon didn't only meet with uh, President Biden. He also met with uh, Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi over on Capitol Hill. Uh, and there they discussed uh, amongst other things, uh, Japan's wartime sexual enslavement of Korean women, which is an issue close to uh, Nancy Pelosi's heart. Uh, and they also talked about, uh, of course, the importance of the uh, Korea-US alliance, always brought up, and you know what uh, Moon and Biden would talk about. But there is one thing that they didn't discuss, uh, and that was US lawmakers' concerns about a recent South Korean law that prohibits the sending of anti-Kim Jong-un leaflets into North Korea. Uh, and that perhaps was a little bit surprising because last month, a congressional hearing took place in the US to address that issue and lawmakers expressed concerns that new law restricted freedom of speech in South Korea. So it was perhaps a little bit odd that Speaker Pelosi didn't mention that with-, uh, with Well, was President she pushing Moon. for that? I actually don't know, but it, was that her initiative or not? Because that might, it might just come down to that. Okay, it, it, perhaps that's it, yeah. Or of course she wasn't the only congressman to meet uh, with President Moon. There were se several others there, and I thought some of them might have mentioned it. The, uh, uh, that might the take some minority whip was there, but didn't. Bring it up one-on-one -on -one might be a little different than having a discussion about it, because who knows? That, yeah, that would be interesting. I just wouldn't totally expect that, unless mm. you had someone, sort of an activist lawmaker who wanted to make a splash. Right, and I don't think the uh, the U.S. priority right now is 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 that with uh, South Korea. It's mainly about firming up their alliances in the Indo-Pacific region as they sort of uh, as they start to seek to check China as their strategic competitor. So 
not surprised it wasn't raised. Mm -hmm. What's interesting, though, is that uh, the U.S. lawmakers were also talking about uh, trying to bring, you know, bring about a peace treaty between or a peace agreement or mm. however it needs to be termed between uh, North Korea and the United States as quickly as possible. I, I wonder, I don't, I'm not really sure what uh, power Congress has to do to force the issue, but they are they're talking about introducing a law. Um, maybe the law would just require the administration to sort of report regularly on on their activities to you know bring about peace. But uh, interesting noises nonetheless, I guess. I'm feeling deja vu, Peter. Is this the first time that such a law has been proposed? I very, very much doubt it. I'm not sure how many times there has been before, but I'm sure that uh, enterprising lawmakers have introduced such things before. Uh, but right. no, realistic, I'm pretty sure that Congress can't uh, originate treaties. They, can, they have to ratify them, but they, don't have, they can't originate them, to my, to my knowledge. Now, was it a treaty that's mentioned in this uh, proposed uh, law or an end-of-war declaration? I think it was some kind of declaration, but I don't think that Congress can declare an end-to-war war. Ah. But maybe I'm well, actually no. Maybe they can like, under the War Powers Act because it does have the it, yeah exactly. It has the power to start war, so perhaps it also has the powers to end it. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, yeah. It would be a bit weird doing it without North Korea signing on to something. I wouldn't. Oh, uh, it, the, I don't think the North Koreans would would accept uh, U.S. Congress's uh, declaration as bringing the war to an end. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, gentlemen, what to look forward to in the next six months to a year coming out of this summit? I mean, will Will we be expecting to see some um, working level talks um, or perhaps no response from North Korea? Because, as you said earlier, that they're not exactly desperate to uh, to enter back into the fray. You know, what, what can we look forward to? Chad, let's start with you first. Well, I just say short term, the very first thing we need to look out for is any North Korean response. As Colin said, I think it's, you know, fairly indicative of Pyongyang maybe being in a in a wait and see mood that it didn't choose to test fire any new weapons or reveal kim jong-un inspecting a new slbm or something to mm -hmm. coincide with this they clearly didn't want to create a justification for a hardline us rok response so i think that's the first thing we need to look for is like how they acknowledge this do they acknowledge it but moving on beyond that i mean i'm not particularly confident that this is going to change anything. I think Biden and Moon have said all the right things to kick the can further down the road. I think, honestly, that was the goal for both of them and to avoid creating justification for any escalation in the months and year ahead. And I, I think it may, it may well succeed in that regard. But yeah, I feel that knowing what we do about North Korea, this is a, an issue that will fundamentally just flare up again and sometime in the next six to 18 months. Mm, yeah. Um, Peter? I'm pleasantly surprised, but I think Chad's absolutely right. There was a lot of can kicking uh, uh, down the road. Really have much more to add, to be honest. Uh, fingers crossed for some positive developments. But I, to be honest, when we look at what's going on on the ground in North Korea right now, I don't think the North Koreans are in any rush to, to uh, initiate dialogue. And we, we have the sort of the, the, the elephant in the room, i.e. China, uh, which which further complicates things as well. So I'm not, not overly optimistic either, to be honest. Mm. Okay, Colin, back to uh, you. Yeah, so I think that as much as we talk about or as much as I like to point to North Korea's statements from the past and how, how we can clearly see what their stance is on these things and what they demand from the U.S., uh, which is drop your hostile policy, which then you can try to figure out what that means before denuclearization talks. But yeah, you also have to remember what, what the U.S.'s stance is too, and they're quite stern on 
on that, they're going to continue sanctions until we work that out through negotiations with North Korea. And they're going to continue demanding denuclearization as, the, as, w- as what they want to talk about with the North Koreans. So uh, what I see happening is if either side decides that it's, they want to actually solve the problems at hand, then they will enter into the same sort of working level talks that we saw uh, in 2018. North Korea has to, Kim Jong-un has to know that that's really his only shot is to just try it again, basically. And maybe if what we heard happened at the Hanoi summit is true in terms of what kind of deals Kim Jong-un was interested in, and if they think that they can get that kind of deal from the U.S. again, then, you know, maybe they see it as the only chance of moving forward is to just start talking again. So maybe Sung Kim will have some talks. And then from there, I foresee us going through the same cycle again in terms of cynicism about what they can actually accomplish. Yes. One one thing to add to that is that I think the one thing the Biden administration did well um, was though they continue to insist that denuclearization is the goal, there seems to be lots reading between the lines to suggest that they're open-minded about a, um, you know, roadmap process that could uh, have some form of concessions earlier on if they, if North Korean actions help improve US security. And by that, I read, for example, dissembling ICBMs that threaten the mainland, things like that. The key problem is that Washington has made no sign to Pyongyang about what it's willing to do in return like there's no there's no clarity surrounding what concessions it would make maybe they want to have that communication privately Mm. um but uh yeah so i think that that, that there is something good in the rhetoric that would if pyongyang like colin suggests may feel that this is the only option then at least there's stuff in washington's rhetoric that may make kim jong-un think that this could be worth pursuing at some point Okay, lots of uncertainties there and many ifs. Uh, That's a good place to end this uh, special post-summit podcast. Thanks again, Chatter Carroll, Peter Ward and Collins Wirko. Thanks for coming on the show. Ladies and gentlemen, if you're already an NK News subscriber and you are a think tank business or academic institution, take a look at NK Pro. Our NK Pro platform offers unparalleled services specially catered to the needs of professionals who monitor developments on the Korean Peninsula. That's where you'll find, for example, the analysis piece that Chad spent half of this afternoon writing. Inquire about access at membership at nknews.org today and also feedback, questions and guest recommendations. Send them to podcast at nknews.org. Our thanks as always to James Fretwell and Chad O'Carroll for facilitating this podcast and to Gabby Magnuson, our new post-recording producer genius. Thanks for listening again next time.